Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sure. And, and in those days, I mean, the early days, you know, um, before the computers, it was the IBM Selectric with a ball. Right, with a ball, he, yeah. Because he could type like 250 words. Like, unbelievable. It's like, you yeah. couldn't believe how fast those things would go. And, you know, now, of course, I mean, the, the biggest bane of my existence is autocorrect. <laughs> Because I can't tell you how many texts I've sent out that actually make no sense at all. Yeah. And for some reason, autocorrect thinks that's better than what I intended to say. It's very hard to use slang. Because it just will default to some other... Well, and also it bases... It it learns from your usage and adapts to it. So it takes words that you uh, use more frequently and it's... um, yeah, but, you know, like with real names or something, it'll change it yeah. particularly because, you know, you get some name that's like Serbo-Croatian or something, and it'll just sort of change it to some kind of treatise, <laughs> <laughs> which is really terrible. Who, <clears throat> God, someone was telling me they, so they, they, they knew they had issues in their relationship when every time he typed his wife's name, autocorrect turned it to the C word. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's going on with my with my texting that that makes that uh, great? <laughs> but um, how are we doing? Are our label our levels good and all the rest of that? Go for it. Are we? Uh, yeah, should we just jump in? Well, oh, so I I never know. Do you prefer cinematographer or director of photography? So either one's fine. I oh, mean, okay, I know some people. I, who I mean, very... my credit is director of photography, but you know, cinematographer is sort of a. It's funny because I did this film in Germany, um, which just finished and uh, or is just coming out, and uh, because in my, you know, in my contract it says director of photography and all these things like that, and they're saying, well, we we want to have have it all in German, so they gave me like a choice of all these different names in German, and none of them are right because you know if you translate because I would translate back and forth, I go, well, I'm not the chief operator, which is what they kind of right. said, and then I'm not like the something artist or what i mean like all these weird trends i said just you know just leave it alone (laughs) camera artist hi i'm josh olson and you're listening to the movies that made me the official podcast of trailers from hell Um, well, we are here today with the great camera artist, <laughs> the cinematographer, Caleb Deschanel. Um, I'm not even going to read you. I mean, you come on being there and Black Stallion and the right stuff. And I mean, you can go on forever. Just some of some of the most amazing looking films um, ever made. And we're going to get to the meat of our show, which is talking about other people's movies. But um, I have to take advantage of the moment. And, and for some reason, I missed it when it came out. I just saw on a lovely, uh, I think, German Blu-ray, I just watched uh, More American Graffiti the oh other night. <laughs> hey, maybe remember at the end of American Graffiti, you wish there was more? Well, there is! It's More American Graffiti! What's me, you idiot? Ah! 
wiser and just as crazy. Uncle Sam says, I need the toad. Terry the toads in Vietnam. Steve and Lori are happily married. Debbie's different. Pregnant. I'm in love. John Milner's the same. I'm John Milner, the owner-driver of this car here, and this is our team t-shirt. I'd be deeply honored if you wore it. She's a foreigner, John. It's my last shirt, too. And I don't know, I remember it was not particularly well-received at the time, but my God, it's not just an amazing movie, but the look of it, the, the looks, the many different looks. Yeah, I can't imagine seeing it anywhere but in a theater, though, because we shot it. George had this idea that he wanted to shoot it in four different formats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one was, you know, 185, which is sort of the normal. And then there's, you know, anamorphic, which is 2.40 to 1. And then he wanted to shoot the Vietnam sequence in the movie in 16 millimeter. Yeah, which looks amazing. And then he wanted to do this sort of hippie sequence in, you know, in uh, multiple screen. Yeah. So we shot it all those different ways. And, uh, yeah, it was sort of of a crazy idea. It's funny because, you know, Bill Norton, who directed it, you know, had, uh, and I, you know, when we were shooting it, you know, really sort of got into all the, the styles of it. And we're really curious how it was going to turn out. But it, each each one was a whole segment of the movie. The the oddest part of it was the fact that this Vietnam sequence, was, which we shot in 16 millimeter, when we blew it up to 35, it was a square frame in the middle of the anamorphic frame, which is the way right. the film was shown. And it was too good. So we ended up actually making a print of the film and then making a negative from that and then blowing it up so that it would actually look like look real worse. footage as opposed to... How I, I got it, not to get too deep, because I imagine most people have... Well, you've seen it, right, Joe? Yeah. I mean, it's four different years, four different New Year's Eves, essentially, over the course of, I think, 1963 to 67, and each one follows a different character, and each... Each of the each characters section, from the original American From the original graffiti. one, yeah. yeah. And and each one is done in a different style. Um, right. But the, the 16 stuff, I mean, there's scenes in that that look like they're just actual news footage. Was any of that? Yeah, well, it was a real attempt to make it look like, I mean, we, wow. we created it all. I mean, there, there was a really odd thing that we did. There was a, there's one scene that happens alongside this riverbed and, you know, I'm in amongst these soldiers and there's all this activity going on and explosions and guns going off and helicopters going over and everything. And, you know, I got this absolute perfect shot where everything was happening in frame and there was a lot of excitement and everything. And then at one point, one of the, the extras went by and he like bumped me and it, the camera sort of shook and moved around and I'm going, and I was really upset because I really had it, was moving the camera hand, holding it the way I really wanted it to be. And, you know, and it was one of these things where you really couldn't do it again because the helicopters and all these other things had to be coordinated. So it was like, that's it. And um, anyway, when they edited the movie together, that little moment where I got bumped by the guy, they just added an off-camera explosion, and it all worked perfectly. (laughs) So every once in a while, these kind of crazy accidents end up becoming much more realistic than you can imagine. Yeah, it worked for that. Where where did did you shoot that up? It was shot in uh, actually it was shot near where George grew up. You know, up Mm. in you know uh, Modesto in that area, Stockton. It was I think it was around. Closer to Stockton. Oh, okay. Because yeah, for a while, Valencia was where everybody shot Vietnam. Yeah. I don't remember. But, um, yeah, but we were based in Northern California for the whole film. So we shot, you know, at Winterland, um, 
you know, for oh, for the, the concert, the yeah. hippie sequences yeah. and all that. Country and, Joe. Yeah, Country Joe. Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you a great story about Country Joe is that, you know, um, they were supposed to perform in the thing, and, you know, like all movies, you're always running a little bit behind, and I remember uh, at, at one point, I'm looking over, and Joe's sort of getting a little anxious and everything, I'm going, you know, what's going on? And finally, you know, he comes up to me, and says, Hey, Caleb, you know, listen, uh, you got to get to us pretty soon. I said, you know, you know you're okay. We, we should get to you pretty soon. He says, yeah, well, you know, we dropped acid about an hour ago, and we're peaking right now. We'd really like to go on stage. So, so not only were we filming a sequence that's supposed to take place in the 60s, you know, in San Francisco with, with you know, all the hippies and everything, but we were actually kind of reliving it in the, you know, in the lives of the characters playing parts of the movie. That's fantastic. Um, well, I guess, yeah, we probably shouldn't spend the whole time talking about a movie that's impossible to find over yeah. here, but there is a beautiful German Blu-ray of it and I hope somebody releases it. Well, it's a universal picture. They, they should come. They, they should, They should yeah. put it out. It's, it's, um, yeah, I was really surprised. I was really. Well, they're getting into their esoteric catalog. I mean, the hired hand is coming out and. Already uh, did. And, and, uh, last movie. Yeah. So I, I think they're, they're, they're going into their the bin on the bottom there where they haven't been for a while. Yeah. But the odd thing is, is that, and it's funny because I sort of run into this over the years is that, you know, you will mention some movie that you've done. That's like the most obscure of all your movies. And you'll run into somebody who goes like, that's my favorite movie. Oh yeah. I love that movie. That's always nice to hear. Yeah, it is great. (laughs) We have somebody we've mentioned this before. A friend of mine said years ago, every every movie ever made is somebody's favorite. Right. Which is scary sometimes. (laughs) My friend Walter Murch used to say that the weirdest idea you've ever had in your life, there's somebody out there devoting their life to that. Yes. (laughs) And I hate to think what that might be because you think of all the crazy ideas you've had in your life. And if there's somebody out there devoting their life to it, there's, there's a lot of strange people starting a religion based on it. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, anyway, Caleb, uh, thank you for coming in. Um, we talked a little beforehand. You've come in with a list, I guess, of, of movies that had, uh, inspired you as a cinematographer. You know, oddly enough, sort of, I made a list of cinematographers who influenced me a lot and the movies, but I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, when I see a movie, I don't think of the cinematography because I really think that cinematography is an integral, integral part of the storytelling. And if it's not, I don't think of it as being good cinematography. So just just pretty pictures are not, you know, don't really appeal to me that much. I mean, I, I, I like, you know, a beautiful image as much as anybody else, but if it serves the purpose of telling the story, then, you know, I really love it. So, I mean, a lot of the movies that, I mean, listen, my, my mentor was Gordon Willis. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I actually studied with him and followed him around for, on a movie and, took light meter readings and figured out what he did and spent time in the lab and then talked to him a lot. But, you know, and also Haskell Wexler and then, um, you know, Connie Hall were kind of my contemporary, you know, they, they were the people who I was looking up to when I was first starting in movies. But, but when I first got, I, I actually went to Johns Hopkins as an undergraduate and I wasn't interested in film or anything, but I had two friends, uh, Walter Murch and Matthew Robbins, who were a year ahead of me at Hopkins, and they went out to USC film school, and I followed them out, because when I was a senior, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, they convinced me that I should come out to film school, so I did, but but what, when I was at Hopkins... Hmm? What had you been studying? Well, I studied a lot of art history and writing and, you know, um, 
all sorts of things. I mean, I started out taking a lot of chemistry and physics and all that, you know, kind of maybe interested in medicine because I come from a long line of doctors in my mother's side of the family. But I sort of got it. I became the editor of the newspaper at Hopkins and I was involved in taking a lot of photographs for yearbooks and all that sort of thing. And then in the summers, I got a job in New York working for a still photographer, a guy named George Pico, who was um, actually married to a woman named Jean Ritchie, who was a dulcimer player and a folk musician. It was really, who would always go to the Newport Folk Festival every summer. And I, I met George because my brother-in-law at the time was a folk musician, a guy named Dick Weissman, who was in a group called The Journeyman with John Phillips, who later formed the Mamas and Papas, and mm. Scott McKenzie and some other people. Anyway, he... Uh, he knew George, and I was interested in photography. I said, well, you know, can you get me his number, and I'll call him and see if I can get a job. Of course, I call him up, and, you know, I mean, I'm like 18 years old or something, and, you know, I'm really nervous about calling this guy and asking for a job. So we just start carrying on a conversation for a little while, and I say, you know, I tell him I'm interested in photography. and But I'm really afraid to ask for a job, and finally he says, after about five minutes of talking, he said, well, wait a second, are, are you looking for a job? And I go, uh, yeah. He said, well, you know, why don't you come in and we'll meet and I'll see. And so I worked as his assistant for, um, you know, a couple of summers. Mm -hmm. And then while I was living in New York, I would go to all these movies on weekends. I'd finish work on Friday night and I'd go to the Bleecker Street Cinema and to the Thalia and to the New Yorker and all these great theaters that had all these revivals. And I... Over a period of a weekend, I'd sometimes see 10 movies, and it was really what influenced me. And the movies I loved at that mm. time were was all the French New Wave, you know, mm -hmm. Truffaut and Godard and, you know, Melville and all those really wonderful filmmakers. And I sort of fell in love with Raoul Coutard's photography because, you know, when I would see a movie like, you know, Ben-Hur or El Cid or something, I never had any idea that I could ever do a movie like that. So when I saw Breathless, I thought, wow, you know, I could actually take a camera and make a movie like that. So it somehow related to me. And of course, you know, Raul Coutard was more than just Breathless. I mean, he was also like, you know, Contempt, you know, Le Mépris, which is this beautiful film. Gorgeous. And, you know, there, I mean, there are just so many great films that he did in all sorts of different styles. And I just was found that, you know, I think initially that was the thing that inf influenced me the most. So It's interesting you said, because I, I, <clears throat> I mean, Joe, you've done sort of big sprawling. Well, not that, not that. Not, I guess, yeah, you haven't done that, but. <laughs> Sure. I, I don't know. I was the one who was sprawling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just always have that. It, sometimes I have to remind myself when I'm watching some movies, you know, you say, go back to Ben-Hur or today, some big giant, you know, action epic. It's like, oh yeah, this is the same thing as the thing I work in. I just can't imagine. I can't conceive of directing a movie that has, you know, five airplanes on a giant. That's why they have assistant directors. But it just, it all seems, <laughs> that doesn't seem, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But, you know, a man and a woman sitting in a room having a conversation, and that, that, seems, that seems doable to me as a, but it's, as a human being. <laughs> but, you know, when you, you start, I mean, I remember, I mean, the first Hollywood, I did The Black Stallion was my first film, and then More American Graffiti, which we just talked about. And then Being There was the first Hollywood movie I did. And that was the mm. first movie where it had a real Hollywood crew with an operator and you know, a regular, you know, top-notch gaffer and, you know, and uh, 
I was working with Hal Ashby, who's really a wonderful band. There's actually they just made a movie, a short yeah, uh, yeah. documentary rather, but it's really terrific. And uh, you know, I, you know, suddenly it was like a more, you know, organized movie where you actually had actors and you actually, you know, because. You know, I mean, yes, on American more American Graffiti, you had that, but it was a little bit more limited in the way it was done. I mean, parts of it were shot like a documentary and everything. And of course, the Black Stallion, working with Carol Ballard, you shoot kind of like a documentary like in the sense that right? yeah. the Carol would set up the situation, and then we just go film it as if it's happening, and then go, oh, let's try this other shot and let's do this. So I would watch these scenes. You know, between Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine and some of the other actors and Melvin Douglas, whatever. And, you know, I was always struck by how chaotic it seemed because the actors would come in and they started walking around and you're looking at it and you're thinking like, how the hell are we going to put this together? And then Hal would go, oh, yeah, when you go over there, that's nice. And then, oh, yeah, you know, oh, I like that when you do that and everything. And slowly it would start to have a form that was actually starting to fall into place. And before I knew it, Hal and I would both end up in the same place and we go, here's where the camera goes. <laughs> and, you know, I he kind of taught me to lose my fear of, you know, that that moment where you think everything is chaotic and it's not gonna come together and everything. And that's, I mean, and obviously a big battle sequence is just a bigger version of the same thing. Yeah. And actually, battles are actually not that hard, particularly. I mean, like when I did The Patriot, we had huge numbers of actors, you know, or, you know, extras mostly, you know, in these scenes. But, you know, when you have the military controlling things, <laughs> there's a discipline to it that you right. can actually design shots around and, and film, you know. So, but uh, yeah, that was a really great experience to realize about blocking and, 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 you know, and and over the years, I've sort of studied blocking. There's a there's a wonderful scene in uh, Paths of Glory uh, between. Uh, it's a scene inside a, a big castle, big chateau, with uh, I think it's Adolf Maju and uh, Kirk Douglas, and they're just carrying on this conversation. And if you watch it once or twice, it just looks like people walking and talking and carrying on a conversation makes sense. But if you look at it a couple more times, you suddenly realize they're walking around in circles, they're walking away. It's all beautifully designed in a way that is, you know, totally acceptable as being realistic. But if you really analyze it, it's not realistic at all. It's actually designed just so that they can have this conversation and make it interesting for a certain period of time so they don't have to cut. Right, And there are all sorts of things like that, that if you really pay attention, which is why I really like watching movies more than once. I mean, I really like watching them a lot of times because once, once you've seen it three times and you're getting bored, you start noticing things that are really fascinating and really just so wonderful about the way people put movies together and make them feel realistic when in fact they may not be. I mean, they're realistic for the story. Right. And that's the important thing. There's an emotional reality to them that's really important. Well, there's that crazy moment in Black Stallion, where, which is a seemingly, you know, more or less realistic film uh, up to a certain point. Sure. No, it is. And, and, and then he's, he's looking for the horse and um, 
who's the the old black man in the in the carriage oh, comes along and gives him this kind of mystic advice as to yes. where the horse is <laughs> going to be and you just you go with it you just go <laughs> well you know it's also i mean it's a kids movie too sure. and you yeah. you know you and it's totally, also kind of a fable you know i mean it is, it's a fable yeah. movie but it just doesn't i i didn't even notice until 20 minutes after it happened you know i remember going wait well wait, wait i mean it <laughs> At the end of the natural, Robert Redford hits a home run, yes. and the lights explode for about twenty minutes. So, I, yeah, I, yeah. you know, is that realistic? No, it's 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 all you know. That film is based on a book that's based on you know King Arthur, and it's really mythology, you know. And I mean, I I really feel like you are able to create something, you know, that that is absolutely, you know fantastical and the audience totally goes along with it as long as they're emotionally carried along by the story true to its own reality yeah, yeah. exactly it creates yeah, yeah. its own reality and but you know when you read books it's like that when you're sure i mean i have grandkids and we read stories to them all the time and there's just they're <laughs> they're outrageous and wonderful and you know that's part of our lives you know growing up is to hear stories and so it's that's what movies are, you know? Yeah. Well, do you want to start at the bottom and work your way up of your, uh, you've got a list of. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, going, uh, going, you know, going way back for sure. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of, of cinematographers, you know, from, and, and I think a lot of my examples have are from black and white and partly because. When I was starting out, you know, I always had people like Haskell Wexler and Gordon Willis saying, ah, you young guys, which I was at one time, uh, you know, you don't know how to shoot movies because you don't know how to shoot black and white. And so as a result of that, I went out and I, I got a grant to do a movie about trains and I shot it all in black and white. And Haskell lent me all his black and white filters. He says, I'm never going to use these again. And <laughs> You know, and, you know, it makes you aware of, and, and Gordon said that as well. He said, if you shoot a color film and you, you should shoot it in a way that if you took all the color out, you would still, your, your eye would still go to what you want the audience to go to. And it's really true. I mean, if you look at a Gordon Willis film, you know, it'll be someone in dark shadow against a bright background or someone brightly lit against a black background or, you know, they're, they're the same. It's, you know, it's the same way you shoot black and white. You should be, you know, you can be shooting color. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I found that really valuable and studied. I mean, one of the, the really great films is uh, Sunrise, you know, which Carl Struess shot and, you know, F.W. Murnau directed and, and, you know, he came to the United States from Germany having directed films like Nosferatu and, you know, he, you know, did this film, I think for, for Fox and, you know, it, I think it probably more than any other movie influenced a lot of American filmmakers, particularly John Ford, who, if you look at the, the early films that Ford did after Murnau made, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Sunrise, he used a lot of the techniques that they used there. I mean, sort of forced perspective sets and all sorts of things, but it's a really beautiful film. And, and talking about fantasy, I mean, there's a, there's a sequence, you know, at night in this, this kind of swamp where he goes, the, the lead character is abandoning his wife and goes to meet this kind of, you know, 
this woman from the city who's you know evil and is floozy. Floozy, <coughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny because the description I looked it up on IMDb and it doesn't say floozy; it just says a sophisticated woman. Wow. <laughs> same thing. Which is a same, same thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, you know, it's I mean, it's it's again, it's sort of like a picaresque, you know, only in reverse, you know, this character and. You know, it's so beautiful and so well done and, and sort of magical the way it's uh, designed because you know they did it on a set and you know that they, you know, they had a, a fake moon and they had all these things and yet, you know, you're just drawn into it. And then they do things where they, you know, they will, they will have the, the rear projection background change, you know, and, and do all sorts of things that just just draw you into the story. And I'm, I can't remember what it is. It's like there's a film that, that John Ford did not long after that film came out. And, and if you look at that and you compare it, you see that there's great similarities in the sort of style and the mm. way they, they designed the, the sets and everything and told the story. So it, I'm waiting for Joe to... Oh, could be, what, oh, could be pilgrimage. It could be anything. I mean, it, from his Fox period, those pictures are very hard to see. Yeah. Joe, Joe has seen everything. I have not seen everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that. I mean, that's the great thing now. Because when I was in film school, if you wanted to see something, you had to call up the studio, get them to lend a print to you know the USC or the AFI where I went to school, you know. And uh, they would send. Up, I, mean, I remember when I was at the AFI, we would just say, "Let's see all of John Ford's films." So we would all of John Ford's <laughs> and just watch movies all the time and drink hot chocolate and talk about them and. Yeah, let's see, of all, all of Hitchcock's films, right. or, you know, as many as you could. But now you but can now, just now you bring can them just, up on Netflix. Now you can, it's Netflix, so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is, it's just, uh, you know, the the availability of everything to, to influence people and to have people study it. And I hope they do study it because, you know, I mean, listen, you can't be a great filmmaker unless you watch lots of movies. And you can't be, just like you can't be a writer if you don't read, you know, it's... There's something about knowing the, you know, it, it, it's like learning a language in the sense that, you know, in school, if you learn a foreign language, you got to learn about grammar and punctuation and, you know, all these other things and how the, the you know, what the, how, where you put the adjective and all this stuff. But, you know, when you're a child, you learn a language and you kind of know it because it, it, it sounds wrong if you, if you're, you know, if you're not using those rules, because you know, and that's the way filmmaking has to be. It just has to be part of your subconscious. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've worked with plenty of directors who don't really care about the rules. I mean, especially someone like Billy Freakin, who's just all the time breaking the rules. And and but that's because he speaks the language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you can do that if you know what you're doing. Yeah. If you don't know what you're doing, it, you know, you just confuse the audience. But if you know what you're doing you can set up something where suddenly a scene feels very nervous and you, you know, you feel like something's off and you don't know what's, you know, what's going to happen because it feels really off because you've broken a certain rule. I mean, if you look at, you know, the other thing about, you know, doing a movie in terms of cinematography is if you establish a style, you know, of the film and then you break that style, you're indicating the audience that something's going to happen. Like, I mean, the example that I like to bring up is like in The Godfather, which is pretty much always sort of eye level and simple tableaus mm -hmm. and everything. And there's a certain point in the movie where you suddenly go to this high angle shot when Marlon Brando's in the market 
and he's about oh, yeah. to be shot. And you, you sense it before it happens because you've established a style and a way of shooting it that when that style is broken, then you're aware that something is going to happen or, or you know something's off. And it, it may be totally subconscious. It may not be that you suddenly go, wait a second, something, you know, it's like, I mean, that's, that's what you need to do when you're making movies is set up, you know, the, you know, similarities in things that, you know, where there are characters that are, you know, are reflecting the same thing that another character is reflecting on the movie or whatever it happens to be. You, you find a way of creating these, these sort of visual cues that tell the audience that something similar is happening because the, the lighting is similar or right. the colors are similar or the composition is similar or something is similar that you've established as a, as a running theme throughout the movie. Well, it's good. It's great. You mentioned that scene because my, my wife, Nancy, you know, you know, um, she loves movies, but she's not, you know, one of us. She's not obsessed. <laughs> not obsessed. <laughs> and, uh, um, she had actually never seen the Godfather and I, I showed it to her a few months She'd ago. Never seen, had never seen the Godfather. And, and, but she's always very tapped into just the most subtle, uh, cues. And I think we're about half a second into that scene and she goes, Oh, he's getting shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe she's seen too many movies. <laughs> or maybe she's seen too many. Yeah, that could be. That could be. But, but yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of wonderful, you know, that, that there's so many different ways of telling stories visually that, you know, if, if you're really aware of it and I, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm obviously influenced by other movies that I've seen and they're really part of my vocabulary and my, a part of my, you know, uh, kind of library for communicating with directors. I mean, it really helps me that directors have seen the same movies I've seen, you know, so that we can talk about things in terms of, you know, style or the way story is told or the way, you know, the camera moves or whatever it happens to be. But, uh, you know, I mean, another factor is, you know, for me, is, aside from movies, is is painting, and you know, and photography, but but mostly painting because I mean, I like to think of painting as being sort of a frozen moment in time. Mm -hmm. And if you look at you know, if you look at Renaissance painting, you know, a lot of it is either you know, influence you know, is is telling mythological stories or religious stories. And if you tell any of those stories, and your audience is aware of those you're finding a moment that happens to be frozen in time, but it suggests what comes before and it suggests what mm. comes after it. And the artist has decided where to put his camera. And he's decided, you know, you know, exactly what moment is there. And, and, you know, you look at paintings and you'll see, and you can feel the gravity of someone falling or you can, you know, you can, you can feel all these things if you really look at it carefully. And the other thing about them is that there's a compositional, there are compositional elements that, that show you where to look, you know? And so, and also with a painting, of course, is that you look at it and you look at it for a while. So you look at one thing and then your eye goes somewhere else and goes somewhere else. And you become aware of how you get guided around, a, you know, a, a particular converse, uh, you know, composition and that influences how you shoot movies too. So mm -hmm. you become aware of those things. So even though movies happen over a period of time, you know, a painting, 
you know, if you think about it and you think that they're about a story that you know, they exist, you know, at, at a time after that happens because, you know, you know, if you see a painting of Jesus being lowered from the cross, you know that at some point you know there's going to be there. a pieta after that, you know, <laughs> where there's going to be Mary holding him. And, you know, and before that there was, you know, some guy nailing in the, you know, the, the hands to the cross. And, you know, the same thing with, you know, any kind of mythological story, you know, about, you know, giants or ogres or whatever it happens to be, you know. So, yeah, I mean, all the all those, you know, it's just making yourself aware of things, you know, visually. I mean, I think if you were a musician, you probably, you know, there there are programs you can listen to, and they they play, you know, different tones, and you you get to listen to the fourths and thirds and fifths, and you get used to that. And the same thing visually, you get used to, you know, how color affects things. You know, I mean, you look at the the credits on Clockwork Orange, they use complementary colors, mm, which yeah. are always sort of shocking. And a lot of paintings from the 60s will use these complementary colors and they almost seem to vibrate because you have a, you know, you have, you know, a, a, a green, you know, against an orange or, you know, you know, I mean, it's just sort of fascinating the way all these things work and, and how much that influences, you know, how you see something. So. Yeah, and how how you are, uh, and at the end of that film, you're still processing the film, but those credits sort of affect the way you do that too. It's sure, fascinating stuff. But uh, what's what's next after sunrise? Um, <coughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, Gordon, who I studied with on a film called The People Next Door, which is like his third movie, and uh, before he had done The Godfather and everything else, and. I, I was at the AFI to, at the time, and I was getting kind of bored there because it wasn't really, you know, I'd already gone to USC, and I was at the AFI, and, you know, I was one of, in the first year there, and so I decided I wanted to have an internship because they always had internships for directors, but they didn't have internships for cinematographers. But, you know, I suggested it to them, and they said, oh, great. But then they really wanted me to study with someone, you know, more in Hollywood, like uh, Harry Stradling Jr. or something. And But I'd seen, you know, the first, you know, end of the road and loving that, that, uh, Gordon had shot. And I really liked his style of shooting. So I really wanted to study with him and, you know, and in the end I sort of, you know, ended up paying for it myself and doing it myself. And my brother-in-law was a record producer in New York and they were living, they lived in New Jersey, but he had an apartment in New York with a Murphy bed that he would use when he was in the city. And then during the day, some guy would use it as a graphic studio and would come in. And so, I would sleep there at night, put the Murphy bed back, put all my stuff off to the side, and then go off and, you know, spend the days with Gordon. And, and uh, but Gordon, I mean, he shot, you know, he shot both, you know, all three Godfather films. He shot uh, Annie Hall. He shot uh, Manhattan, All the President's Men, Clute. I mean, all these sort of amazing movies. But, you know, he never... You know, he was nominated for Zelig and I forget Godfather Three or something, but never for the movies that made the biggest impact because he was he was sort of an outsider in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and I think he was, you know, his style, which was so different than old Hollywood movies, was was something they they just you know didn't didn't they call him the Prince of Darkness? Yeah, yeah, was yeah, but <laughs> you know, it's sort of it, you know, I'm I'm always 
bothered by things where they just reduce somebody to one thing. And, you know, if you really look at his movies, it's, you know, he, he created his, you, you know, on the screen, the way you create darkness is by having light in certain places. And then it makes it dark because if you just show all black, it's just sort of murky on the screen. Right. I mean, now you, you have these laser projectors where you can actually get absolute black on the screen. But, you know, in the old days when you're running film through the camera, if you had the blackest black you could get, you know, on a piece of film rolling through a projector, it would still be kind of murky on the screen. And the way you made that murkiness look black is if you put a light bulb right you know, on one side of the screen, everything else would go black. But if it's all black, so, you know, Gordon was very good at, at sort of using light to create darkness and shadow and, you know. Um, I'm amazed, really, though, that he had, you're right, he, he wasn't nominated for a lot. No, no when I think of Godfather, I, mean, he eventually, I think of Eventually the scene. Academy gave him a special <clears throat> Academy Award yeah. for his body of work, which was really great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was really odd that, you know, these movies that, like the Godfather, they would get like 14 nominations or something crazy, and then they somehow admitted the fact that, you know, it was photographed, you know, in this sort of wonderful way. Yeah, that was look it was a, a big part of yeah. that storytelling. Yeah. I mean, you know, Francis and and Gordon, I don't think got along very well, but at the same time, despite the fact that they did one and two together. Francis really wanted them to do three, even though they were just on each other all the time. <laughs> but, you know, I think Francis respected, you know, what Gordon brought to it, even though he drove him crazy. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, and then of course Haskell Wexler, you know, who was a big influence on me too, was, you know, he came out of, you know, doing a lot of documentaries and that sort of thing. And he, you know, of course, won an Academy Award in black and white for, you know, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and then won in color for, uh, you know, Bound for Glory. I think he won the last black and white for Virginia Woolf because they used to have a, you know, <coughs> color cinematography in black yeah. and white. And, uh, you know, it's sort of too bad because, you know, black and white was really beautiful. There's so many, you know, amazing movies that were made in those days in black and white. Um, you know, of course, Citizen Kane, Greg Toland, yeah. you know, who was another really great cinematographer who was probably most famous for deep, deep focus. I mean, it's like saying Gordon Willis, you know, the right. Prince That's of Darkness, Greg Toland, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, deep focus. <laughs> but by deep focus, they basically mean, you know, wider lenses that, that you know, see everything. And, and apparently uh, Greg Toland was just, you know, he took Orson Welles and, and, you know, took him to his house and spent time with him before they did the movie and really educated Orson Welles, who just was coming out of the theater. And, and then together they made, you know, one of the most, you know, incredibly visual movies ever. You know, and, and the other thing that was really amazing was that, um, you know, Lynn Dunn did all these visual effects who had, had done King Kong and then he did the visual effects in... Uh, you know, in Citizen Kane. And Orson Welles was just not afraid to just, you know, use all these visual effects in the movie and miniatures. And he used to, Len used to have a uh, show that he would do and he would bring around all the clips from uh, the various scenes in, in Kane, which have effects in them that people don't notice because sure. they're so well done. 
and it was and he he had the varying stages of you know the the black spaces where the actors go and then the paintings and uh, and the, the pans and the tilts and all that kind of stuff and it was quite amazing and 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 Linwood was a great raconteur so he would have every couple of years he would appear uh, down at the uh, L.A. County Museum with his with his show and it would be um, just amazing for us film students. Yeah, I mean, the, and, and in those days, I mean, now it's all done in computers and they build models in the computers and all this stuff. But I mean, in those days, you really had to think it out and figure out how to do it. And they, you know, they did matte paintings and they did miniatures and they, they timed the pans to work. And, you know, it's really quite remarkable what they were able to do in that day, you know. And there are a lot of visual effects shots in Citizen Lots, Kane. yeah. I mean, it's really, it's pretty remarkable. And it, it has its grand scale because of that. And, you know, and you, you know, you look at stylistically the, the opening of that, you know, where they shot things to look like newsreel footage. And then, you know, the rest of it that's, you know, very highly stylized with the low angles and the, you know, deep depth of field where things are going on in the background. And it's really, it's, it's such a wonderful movie. And I think, you know, um, you know, Greg Tolan certainly, you know, had, uh, you know, w was willing to sort of take all the chances that Wells wanted to take. I mean, I think Wells was, what, 25 years old yeah. when he did that movie. And he, and he wanted to be, he wanted to learn. And he, you know, Tolan was excited to work with him because he was open to doing anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's great to work with people who have a lot of great ideas, you know, it's just. I mean, ideas generate other ideas, and, you know, it's it's so exciting to, you know, I always love working with, with directors where you're just like, well, we could do this, and like, oh, yeah, and then do this, and then each thing keeps building on the other thing that the other person is thinking, and you end up, you know, making it much better. I mean, I always like to be really prepared when I do a movie. I mean, I always like to read scripts a number of times, and I always, I mean, I'll do my own storyboards just for myself, even though they're you know, they might hire people to do the story, but, but I like to, you know, as, as a representation of what I think you need to get out of a scene. In other words, like you read a scene and there's, you know, probably five or six things that you really need to get across in that scene. You know, just like an actor reads the part and goes, well, I have to make my argument, you know, and they have to make their argument. And, you know, how does the conflict get resolved? And then what's happened and who's on top and who's on the bottom and who's reflecting, you know, what's going on. And, you know, um, and then the reality is that, you know, the movie's not made till you're on the set. And then you might just throw out everything because my, my rule is if you come up with something better than what you imagine, go with it. If you find that you absolutely have lost your mind and you can't remember what you should be doing, then, then go to the storyboards right. that you drew. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Have you have you have we talked about this? Have you seen the the Godfather notebook that uh, they <clears throat> I can't remember who published it? 
There's a regular hardcover <clears throat> version, and then there's a recreation, and it's Francis Ford Coppola's notebook yeah. for The Godfather, in which he took every page of the book, taped it to a piece of paper, writes handwritten notes all over it, and then each, it's broken down into sort of chunks of story, and then each one he goes through, for me at least, sort of the stuff that you would think would be obvious, what needs to happen in the scene, what it needs to look like, I mean, but he's thought everything out to the nth degree. My favorite section, though, is he has an essay after each one of, here are all the ways I can now fuck up this scene. <laughs> and he tries to anticipate all the ways he will mess it up so that he can be prepared not to. And I thought that was, <laughs> that was kind of inspired. It's an amazing book. It's worth, it's worth looking at. But here's the question. If you can read this book written by Francis Coppola, who made one of the great movies of the last hundred years or so, The Godfather, and uh, you can read that and see his thought process and how he came to the decision-making, then why can't everybody read that book and become as great as Francis Coppola? <laughs> you know, what is there? What is it that makes There's someone... There's that little intangible piece of talent that people have. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, maybe somebody can too. You don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, but it'll be different. <clears throat> yeah, the the, the yes. personality of the of the, the well, I mean, if, is, if, is if you, the, the yeah. difference. If you think about it, I mean, what makes something wonderful is its originality. You know, is is that it's something that's never been done before. I mean, what's so boring is when you see movies that are just, you know, Same. copies of something else or imitations of. You know, it's just like seeing, you know, a a band that imitates the Beatles, you yeah. know, they, they can imitate the Beatles really well. I mean, get all the riffs right. And the guys sound just like the Beatles and everything. Not the real thing, but a remarkable simulation. Remarkable simulation. Yes. We'll, we'll just edit in our but, standard superhero <laughs> movie conversation here. We don't have to yeah. engage in it. But, uh, but I mean, it really is sort of fascinating that it doesn't really, you know, it's, it's, it's like having an original piece of art. Well, it's that much better than the yeah. fact that you can do a laser copy of it. And, you know, but you know, I mean, it's 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 true that with even with paintings, if you see the real painting, it's so totally different than you know the postcards you buy in mm -hmm. the museum store. You know, it's it's not the same. I mean, it's a it's a matter of scale, it's a matter of you know of texture, texture, and and you know the the actual representation of the real colors that were used. It's sort of analogous to seeing a movie on television instead of in a theater. Yeah, I, I remember the well, first time I was in a room with a with a Van Gogh. I had never been in a room with a Van Gogh painting, and it was just in a, and it was in a large collection, and it caught my eye from the corner, from all the way across the room, and it just begged me to come over. And I not only was mesmerized by it for the first time, I completely understood why he ate his own paint. It just, you just wanted to, it just had the, I, I can't even describe it, but I had never, I'd never actually been in a room with the actual thing. I'd only seen representations and recreations. It was amazing. Yeah, no, I mean, it, there, there's something about it. I mean, you see, you know, like a real Rembrandt and there's just mm. something about, you know, the light and the, the dark and the, the details of the, you know, it's like the Mona Lisa and the, the Louvre, you know, it's, there's real reasons for that. There's a wonderful yeah. book uh, I've been reading about Leonardo da Vinci that talks about so many things that, you know, I think as a cinematographer you think about because he talks about light and the, the colors and the mm -hmm. shadows and the way, you know, you know, the way lines are not real sharp. And I mean, just all sorts of wonderful things that, and, and being aware of atmosphere and 
the distance and all this stuff. That's all part of what you really are observing when you're, you know, when you're filming a film, you know. Mm. Um, well, I talked a little bit about Raul Coutard. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen A Midsummer Night's Dream from mm -hmm. 1930. The only time, a, a, the only time a, a director of photography actually was won an Oscar because of a write-in campaign. Yeah, was it? <laughs> yeah, oh, he, wasn't, he wasn't nominated, and he was written in. Well, it wow. should have should have happened to happen to Gordon Willis on Godfather One <laughs> yeah, and Godfather Two and yep. Annie Hall and uh, Manhattan and uh, well, never mind. But. This, I'm gonna ask. This is the Mickey Rooney one, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, I've <laughs> yeah. seen pieces of it on uh, you know the original nitrate film, and it's just astounding. You know how. You know, there's so much. It depth. does gauze filters and uh, all, all sorts of um, sparkly things on the lens, and mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's the most fantasy-like fairy tale movie look that I've ever seen in a movie, and that's 1935. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just it's incredible, and you just have this feeling of them creating this world that you can't even imagine how they created it. I mean, these things with these sort of dancing berries through the things where you, you know they're floating in air and i mean it's just astounding i don't really and it's a filmization of uh, a play that was done at the hollywood bowl frequently uh and it was very popular it was a sort of an annual kind of a thing and then um i guess uh jack warner decided that they wanted to make a movie and so they brought max reinhardt who had directed the the play which may have started in germany for all i know uh out to do it and um they spent a lot of money and had all of their contract players in the movie, people like Joey Brown mm -hmm. doing Shakespeare. Uh, and it was... Uh, oh, it, Mickey it's, Rooney doing Shakespeare. And it was, it's, it's, quite a, uh, it's quite an amazing film. I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing. Is it? Is it? Is there a... Yeah, it's out. Um, yeah, video you can original. see it. I, I mean, it, I, I have but. to say, you can never quite really appreciate it as much as you would if you get to see it on the big screen because yeah. it's, it's, you know, you, you can imagine it existing on a on a computer screen or a tv screen you can imagine those effects but to realize that they did it you know in 35 millimeter black and white beautiful nitrate film with incredible deep blacks and you know sort of velvety whites and grays i mean it's just really the tones of it are so incredible it's really it's it's quite remarkable mm. um it was olivia de havilland's first movie Oh, wow. And uh, she's incredibly gorgeous, as in an, as is uh, Anita Louise, who plays the queen of the fairies, and it, they're, they're just um, they're goddesses. <laughs> did it ever? Thing. I never did it come up when you were working with the Mick, or uh... <laughs> no? But I mean, working with with Mickey was was a pretty amazing experience because there there was this one incident that happened where you know he's teaching Kelly Reno, the little boy, about riding a horse and. Mm in a race and everything and he's got him on a uh, he's got him on a bale of hay and he's sort of showing him how to throw his arms forward and meantime Mickey's standing right you know he's right in front of Kelly and he's holding him by his arm and sort of forcing him back and forth and every once in a while Mickey would grab Kelly's arm and squeeze it really hard and when he squeezed Kelly's arm really hard you know Kelly's eyes would pop open and he'd stare at Mickey like this and everything and we're going and Carol kept saying, like, what the hell is Mickey doing? I go, I don't know what he's doing. 
So anyway, you know, six months later, they're in the editing room, and Carol says, come here, I want to show you something. I go, so go to the editing room, and sure enough, you know, you see the boy looking, and suddenly his eyes pop open, and you have to cut because he's staring in a way that says, you have to see what I'm looking at. And what, do you mean, what is he looking at? Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney. Oh. <laughs> in a close-up. Oh so, my God. you know, it's like, you know. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. You know, there's uh, somewhere on the internet, because I've heard it, there's an interview with John Frankenheimer talking about doing the comedians for Playhouse 90 mm -hmm. and working with Mickey Rooney. And how when they did the, you know, the, the read-through, when they had the, the, you know, when we got all the actors together and they did the read-through. And, and at the end of the read-through, all the other actors were coming up to Frankenheimer and saying, oh, you know, we're being blown away by Mickey. He's so good and everything. I mean, we're never going to be able to, you know, compete with him on the screen. It's going to, you know, it's just, it's, you know, we're really, and, and Frankenheimer reassured them, no, no, don't worry about it. You'll all get better. And. You know, it'll it'll settle in. It'll be really good and everything. And then, of course, during the rehearsals, Mickey starts to get bored, and you know, he decides to change lines and all this stuff. And you know, he, you know, is not really staying. Frankenheimer is saying, like, what am I going to do? Because this is live television, ninety minutes, and it's got to fit into the slot. And you can't go. You know, you can fudge it a little bit here and there, and they can you know, maybe cut an ad or something or do something if it runs long or maybe they can add another ad if it runs, you know, whatever it happens to be, but you really have to get it. And, and you know, the other thing is, is that there are all these cues for the cameras and they're working things out. And, you know, as they keep rehearsing it, Mickey's just getting more and more, you know, and Frankenheimer says, listen, you know, you, you really, you can't deviate from the script because, you know, this is life. He says, ah, you know, the only person who, you know, I'd follow the script 100% is old Billy Shakespeare. You know, this is all malleable and everything. So Frankenheimer's trying to figure out, what can I do? What can I do? So finally he goes and he looks at the script and he goes, ah, Mickey, come here. I want to show you something. You see this? It says right here, you know, he says this line and then you say this line. And what does it say after that? It says, you say, you know, hey, Bob, why don't you come in here? And it says, cut the close-up of Mickey Rooney. If we don't hear those lines the way they're supposed to be written, there's no close-up of Mickey Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, Mickey was right on script. Oh my God. And have you seen that? But that's a, have you ever seen that? That's really it's a, great. It's great. It's I, I have really not seen that. No, great. It's, and, it's, and it's one of it's the best also, pieces of TV ever. It's also genius staging. And, you know, Frankenheimer was really brilliant yeah. at live television. I mean, Sidney Lumet, there's some other people who came out of live television who did amazing work where they would, you know, design sets in ways so that they would have a mirror so that you could see right. what was going on in the background at the same time as what's going on in the foreground. And, and you know, it's it's really really a lot brilliant. of those a lot of those live uh, shows are kinescoped and they are available. I think that one's on the and Criterion's. They're, they're, they're very, they're very exciting yeah. to watch. Yeah, I mean the original the, good ones. the original Requiem for Heavyweight is. I've seen I mean, that. the the amount of and there's some mistakes. I mean sometimes the camera's a little late yeah. or it's got to focus or what. But there's something kinetic about it. There's something so exciting about it's it's like watching it live, which yeah. it is. Which it is. You know, you but are, even yeah. now after all these years. <laughs> It's you still get that impression when you when you watch it. It's it's really it's it was, it was a a great medium live TV, which I'm I'm afraid the the dawn of tape more or less ruined. But um, 
Well, you know, they, really they've, can... they've tried to do it on NBC. Well, George Clooney did it a couple of times. That's right. He did. Uh... He did a failsafe version. Right. right. Uh, and um, was like Twelve Angry Men or something. Maybe something, maybe something like that. Yeah. But it's not done very frequently. Yeah. yeah, you wonder if you can give people that that sense of something live anymore because. You know, they'll just think they're being fooled that it's really not. And yeah, like, well, you would think like magicians the, the, on TV. The appeal for an audience right now would be the possibility that it could all go terribly wrong. Well, that was when I was a kid. That was I, always the appeal. When I was a kid, I actually couldn't watch some te- live television because I had once seen a set fall over, <laughs> and I was so embarrassed for the actors. I would, I, it, it would be, I would be emotionally wrung out by the end of the show, just hoping nothing would go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> You're a very empathic man. Yes. But but there really was something about live television that that created you know a, an energy and a you know a sense of anticipation that was really you know made it extra dramatic you know. So when you decided to direct, yeah, what kind of a change did you have to make in terms of the way you were looking? Well, at? I mean to be honest with you, I mean I've always thought about cinematography as just being an aspect of directing. I mean not. You know, I mean, it's 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 like directing with a million less decisions to make. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're a director and you're answering five million questions in the course of a movie, as a cinematographer, you're only only figuring out maybe a million. You know, because <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I don't. You know, I, I think it's very easy for cinematographers to get into those sort of mechanics of, you know the cinematography. I mean, it's really easy to just hide behind, you know, doing the lenses and, you know, exposure and setting a light meter, you know, reading a light meter and, you know, getting the dolly set and doing, you know, but really, if you're really, you know, you're really sort of the right hand of the, the director in the sense that you're trying to help tell the story. And I mean, I'm always, always involved in, the idea of what do I need to see in order for this scene to come alive and for it to tell the story that, you know, is on the page, you know? So, I mean, you know, I I think being a director, you have to at least, I mean, although it's not always true, I mean, I think you have to really like actors and I really, I love being around actors. I love, as a matter of fact, one of the, the great things I think about being a cinematographer is being able to see and experience a performance for the first time and know that it'll end up in the movie and that at some point somebody would be sitting in a theater and see this performance and saying, oh my God, that's incredible, you know, that, that they've expressed something. And the other thing, I mean, on every movie I've ever worked on, there are a couple of scenes that I don't quite understand, you know, until the actor gets in there and brings something to it that you suddenly go, oh, now I get it, you know, because, you you know, for me as a cinematographer, even though I'm not involved in the acting or anything, for me to really understand what the scene's about, I actually have to run it through in my head as if I'm the actors. I have to think of, you know, being in that situation and like, what would that be and what is the emotion and, you know, what am I realizing at this point, you know, in the story and what comes before and what comes after. And, you know, so, I mean, in, in a sense, you know, but because I'm not a good actor, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm a cinematographer, you know, there lots of scenes in movies are pretty, 
straightforward, but there are always these scenes that are sort of the most insightful scenes and most wonderful scenes where an actor will come in and bring something to it that just surprises you. And it's, so it's, true. Just, it's yeah. so great. I mean, like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting under the camera, you know, with the operator and the camera, and I'm just watching this scene and I go, oh my God, these actors are so good and they're, they're making me believe them in a way that I never thought was possible. And they're bringing an understanding to these lines and to this character and this part that I never thought was there, you know, a certain layer and depth to what they do that's just amazing. I mean, well, I'll reveal a, a writer's secret too. It's it's not always there. I've I've had a couple of times where uh, there were scenes that, that just did not come out quite the way I wanted to on the page and to sit there and watch an actor find something in it that you had not intended or had not been able to find yourself. And, and you go, them. yeah, yeah, that's and it. Like, oh God, I know I had one occasion. I just, I remember sitting there going, wow, this is great. Who wrote it? And then realizing it was my crappy script and an amazing actor just finding a, a residence in it that I didn't know was there. No, I mean, that's the him. great thing about <clears throat> wonderful yeah. actors is yeah. that they find something that makes it real and makes it believable and, and impacts you in, a, in an emotional way that's just... No, I'll go on record as being a big fan of The Escape Artist. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, from the time I saw it, it's, I know it was not it didn't, didn't make much of a blip, yeah. but um, it's a lovely movie. Uh, it's got a great score. Oh, uh, incredible score. George Delarue. And, and it's just, it's just a, 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 an underrated gem that I think people just don't know about. That was, that was uh, early, early 80s? Late yeah, 70s. 1982. 1982, yeah. Yeah, it was, um, you know, Griffin O'Neill, Ryan's son. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because Ryan eventually ended up playing my daughter Emily's dad on Bones many <laughs> <laughs> years later. But strange, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Raul Julia and Terry Gar and Desi Arnaz. Desi Arnaz. I mean, Raul Julia as Desi Arnaz's son is like, you know, it was so. I mean, I, I really love the cast. I mean, that that was a great thing because Fred Roos, um, who was one of the producers on the film, along with Francis um, Coppola, uh, was a casting director before he became a producer. So he always had these sort of crazy. I mean, he's the guy who came up with Mickey Rooney for The Black Stallion, you know, who thought that would be really great because. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, there's something something about casting where you, if you cast somebody who in their lives is, has been sort of living, you know, the story that they're telling and, and the idea of Mickey Rooney playing, you know, this sort of has been horse trainer and who's going to make a comeback, you know, in a way it's sort of, you know, mirrored what was happening to Mickey Rooney because he made a real comeback after doing The Black Stallion. Yeah. And of course, he had always been a great actor, but I guess he had a reputation for being tough. Like I was talking about with John Frank and I was like, come on, Mickey, you got to say the lines. Yeah. Or, I don't know to <laughs> cut to your close up. But uh, yeah, I love the actors in the movie. It was great. Rod Julia was just amazing. I mean, because he was so, you know, incredibly imaginative and he would just want to try things and you know i would just say yes you know try that you know he would just do some imitation of you know some cartoon character or something and you know it was just he was just great you know and i i mean i really loved the story too because it was really this you know sort of magical book about 
I just love the idea of a boy who, you know, who so wanted to be an adult and so wanted to use magic as his, his, you know, entry into the adult world and yet was still a little kid, you know, because I think, you know, I think it's part of a lot of people's lives, you know, to do that. That's a lovely film. Um, do you want to hit us with maybe one more before we? Uh... <laughs> well, you know, I mean, another person, I mean, more, you know, not not much ahead of me, but Vittorio Storaro was, oh. you know, a big influence on me too. And part of it, I mean, first of all, I think The Conformist is like one of the most amazingly shot movies and, you know, the, the Last Emperor. And then, you know, he also shot Apocalypse Now for Francis Coppola. And, you know, one of the things, and, and one of the reasons why I bring it up is because when, uh, you know, Francis was finishing up the Apocalypse Now, they needed a lot of shots done and Vittorio couldn't do them. So we shot a lot of things on the Napa River and a lot of inserts and all these things. And so what it made me do was study what Vittorio had done and what the lighting was. And I got to the point where I could see a scene and I can do this to this day is I can see a scene and I know exactly where the lights are and what they are just because I had to study this, you know, all this footage really carefully in order to, you know, they're walking along and they're in the middle of the jungle in the Philippines and we're suddenly in Napa and we have to cut to some <laughs> guy taking a card and dropping it on some body and we need a close up of that. And I had to match the light. Oh, you exactly. just ruined that scene for me. And the whole thing, you know, <laughs> and uh, it was really fun. And then, you know, there's this whole scene where, you know, Marty Sheen is, is looking at these dossiers on the boat and everything. And I mean, this thing is really, if you look really carefully, you can see that Marty looks a lot more healthy than he does in the rest of the movie oh, no. because he put on a little bit more weight because he had lost so much weight when they were in the Philippines. And so we're filming them, you know, like two years later, you know, on the Napa River on these PBRs. And, and then we built a whole rig with uh, some, you know, uh, strips of, of bamboo and stuff and then put it on a turntable so that the light would move across all the dossiers and things. Uh, and just yeah. figuring out all these different ways to keep something alive, you know, rather than just because what I really hate, and it's it's actually something about, they're parts of like the natural where they have these newspapers and things. And it drives me crazy because they're just kind of like real ordinary, you know, they don't, they yeah. don't think about fitting them within the context of the movie and stuff. Um, so yeah, that, that was a really wonderful experience to have to force myself to, to really be aware of what, how something went together and, and, and how you, you can fit something into something that's already been done and, and make it look exactly like what was done. Was that, was that intimidating at all to have to kind of smoothly? Not, <clears throat> not really. I mean, you know, because I think back to the, you know, to the number of films I've done where you film part of them, like, you know, like in the natural, there's a scene where, you know, Redford as a young Redford strikes out the whammer and everything. And then at the end of the scene, he's running away and the kid says, you know, what's your name? He says, Roy Hobbs, and he's waving from the train and everything. Well, we shot had this train in New York, and we shot all that stuff, but we never got the shot of Redford. So we shot that scene in Train Town, you know, in Griffith Park, and we just put a dolly <laughs> along a train that was just sitting there on the tracks, and we just dollied back as if the train was leaving, 
in Redford Way is you know Roy Hobbs. You know, I mean, then there's a scene at at the end where he goes back and he sees Glenn Close, and we're in a set that was in Buffalo, New York, and you know there was nothing to look at outside because it was on a set. So we went to a a street in in actually in Venice, which still had cobblestones and everything, and we built a window and up on a platform and we looked out the window and Glenn Close goes to the window in the set in Buffalo and she looks out and there's Robert Redford in Venice, California walking away. <laughs> and then in Spiderwick Chronicles, we did a scene, you know, in, in a set in New York and are in, you know, in, uh, it was in Canada. And, um, and then we had to redo some things and they rewrote some stuff. And so we ended up shooting, we had the set brought, the set here and then we shot the kids in one direction and then we shot you know in the other direction and we had to go to london in that because the actress who was there you know so you know all the time you're doing stuff to piece things together and it's i mean it, i find it sort of exciting and sort of sure. fun to sort of fool people that way and, well, if you, and wanna... you can only fool people if you're really aware of what it is that what are the cues that tell people that you're in the same place i mean it's you know lighting it's the yeah. same lenses it's the you know compositional elements i mean you know it's it's uh you just become it sounds like you had it. fun yeah yes. no i i like i like the fact that you get to fool people that way sometimes if, if you ever want to have have you watched sensei joe or we Not talked yet. about we have talked about if you want to give yourself a, a headache just thinking about production it's uh the oh i know is. because uh, john toll shot that you know, oh sensei. okay yeah, yeah where they're and, shooting on and he six and I, different continents. I know he and i had uh <laughs> you know dinner one night because we were both in berlin together a couple of years ago and he was on that and he's you know, they're shooting in Berlin and then they go to South America and they do, you know. But they're doing what's, what's happening. If people haven't seen it, there'll be a character <coughs> in Sweden uh, who's psychically connected to a character in Africa somewhere. I can't remember which country. And, and, but they're able to see each other and communicate with each other and they'll shoot it like a regular conversation, but they do it from both characters' perspectives. So they're shooting all of one character shots in Sweden. And then nine months later, they're shooting the other characters sort of reverse angles in Africa and having to, it's just, <laughs> you can't help but think about that stuff while you're watching it. Just the, but I, I, yeah. Did he shoot every, the whole thing? I think he did. Wow. I mean, well, I think, well, I, I, I'm not sure he shot, I mean, shot, you know, certain big sections. Of the video, yeah. I know he went all over the world. I mean, went to India and Africa and all these other places, you know, it's a lot of plane tickets. A lot of plane yeah. tickets, yes. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I used to be really excited about those things, but, you know, after a while, you've been so many different places at a certain so Traveling point. is much worse now than it was before. Yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed the fact that I've been filming here for the last year or something, so that was that was great. But um, uh, Well, it's great. I Do you want to do one more, or are you okay for time? Um, well, Eugene Shufton, who shot uh, The Hustler. Sure. You know, and also shot uh, a film called Lilith, which is a film One I really loved. I, I love that movie. Nobody I knows mean, it. That, I can't, I, I've, I've, I've never even to, heard of it. I've been what? trying to, it's with Gene Seberg and Warren Beatty, and I've been trying to find a trailer. And Peter Fonda. A trailer for a trailer from Hell for years, and I've never been able to find one. Uh, it's a, a picture of mental illness. It's Robert Rossum's last picture wow yeah i mean he was he the the film i guess was not much of a success and i think it really he was really bothered by that 
Uh, well, he also he and Beatty didn't get along, and and so it was uh, it was a very unpleasant experience apparently. But it's a it's really a lovely movie. Is, is there any way to see it? I've never even. Heard I, it's on video. Is it? On video? I mean, I saw it in college, and I mean, I I was just, you know, I don't know whether it was just sort of matching up with you know a certain psyche of, you know, the sort of beauty of insanity, and it was just something sort of wonderful about the movie that I really I just sort of found really fascinating. You know, it's just sort of the allure of. You know, the idea that, you know, creativity and, you know, and insanity and the, you know, the intersection of the two. I can't say that it's all in that movie, but I sort of was getting that out of it. I actually, you know, the movie that I just, is just coming out now, which is a film I did with Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who directed The Lives of Others. This film is based on the life of Gerhard Richter. And, uh, it's got a lot to do with that idea, of, you know, mm. what it is that inspires people and what is creativity and what is... And how close is that to madness? Pardon? And how close is that to madness? Yeah. 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 It's really kind of fascinating. Is that just something we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good or is... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, you, you, you know, the fact that we both... Have these obscure movies that we like? Is really and we cool. probably saw them around the same age. Yeah, you know? no, that was. I mean, that I've I've never even heard of that. And that's oh yeah, it's great. Well, you saw the Hustler, right? Of course, yes. Of I course. mean, that's. Yeah, yeah, I mean, no, that's he was a, he was a, a very talented. Uh, you know, the, the Shifton process, the whole idea of forced perspective and small sets and putting people. Darby O'Gill and the little people were mm. shot with the Shifton process, which was. You, in order to make well, people he, look small, you put them far away in the oh, back sure, of the yeah, set, yeah, and then you yeah. have an actor. Of in the front and you shoot it and light it in a way that the camera thinks that it's all on one plane but in right. fact it's you know miles but of Schuften you know started out in Germany and he did the visual effects on Metropolis you know yeah. so you know and and you know was pretty much a visual effects kind of cameraman for a while before he started you know, and he came to America and worked on Poverty Row movies but he usually couldn't take a credit because of the unions Hmm. But uh, he, he got some consultant credit or something. Or is it no, he's a DP. He's a DP. Okay. Huh. Yeah, Robert Rosen was the one who directed yeah. Lilith and directed uh, The Hustler. But The Hustler is one of the great movies. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's Rose. really, you know, and beautiful black and white. Black and white yeah. scope, my favorite. Scope. Film. Yes. Yep. Yes. I know. Well, <laughs> then Manhattan yeah. has to be one of your favorites Fabulous. as well. I mean, it's one of the great really movie. amazing movies. I mean, it's hard to believe. I'm sure if if there was the day of black and white in color, Gordon might have been nominated for that. But I keep hoping it'll come back. There was, there was a George Miller released uh, <coughs> Fury Road a couple years ago. Black and white, white. It did, but amazing. he didn't shoot it in black and white. Right, so it's not quite the same. But it still looked lovely. It it made people think about that. Yeah, I thought. No, I think black and white is good. Every, it's every so often, Nebraska. somebody there's a couple That's of right, movies. Nebraska was a couple yeah. of movies that came out last, well, which again was shot in color. Yeah, but yeah, it, you know. it was shot because they had to shoot it in color. Right. In, in, what's in the, what's the, 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 general, the general where he shot, shot it in color and then, and then they it. added the grain to it, but it was yeah. really convincing. But they made him shoot it in color. Yeah. Well, they usually do it because they want to have a backstop. So they, right. And I've seen it. I've seen uh, Nebraska on TV in color. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, in show, color? Showtime ran it in color. It was shot in color. And the reason that they shoot it in color is so that they can have a color version right, that they can right. sell to people who don't want to watch black and white. But, yeah. you know... Nebraska is they don't want black Ted and movie. colorizing it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Well, that's one good reason. Yeah. <laughs> At least, 
But the thing is about if you're really shooting something in black and white, you have so much more flexibility because you actually use costumes that are certain colors and filters. You yeah, know? I mean, you use, it's a, it's a different you know, way you use red it. filters to exaggerate the, the clouds in the sky and darken the blue of the sky. And well, you can also, you can, I just watched a, I think it's just a commentary on this, a beautiful Blu-ray of, of uh, Rumblefish out. And somebody on it was talking about how they actually they painted some of the shadows. You used to do that in, yeah, uh, they did that in Caligari. That. It never occurred well, to me, but of course you could do that. But, you know, I mean, I was talking about, you know, sunrise. There's a yeah. scene in a church there where the streaks of light are actually painted on the, oh, sure. the yeah. you know, the church walls. I mean, that's that's very, I mean, Steve Buram shot Rumblefish, who's, you know, a real, you know, wonderful student of all the great old cinematographers. He actually was at UCLA with Francis, and, uh, you know, he knows all those old tricks, so. Not many people know about those things anymore, that, or they should study it, but they don't necessarily know how it was done. But yeah, I mean, it's it's great. I mean, the thing is though now, I mean, I find myself actually creating, you know, bits of light in the background where I won't be happy with something that I've shot, and I just sort of create a streak of light on the background wall or something, and I can do that in a DI, which I couldn't do when we shot something on yeah. film. You know, at least before there were DIs when you, you know, scanned film and, and went to digital. But, yeah, it's, I mean, that's that's another thing I that I find really interesting, too, is the, the idea that in the old days you used to have, you know, you used to film something and then you'd have your opinion about it. And then the next day you'd see dailies and it would either be better or worse than what you thought. <laughs> and that was it, right? But you would actually have you know, a chance to be separated from the excitement of being right. on the set. And, and now it's all instant. Yeah, now it's instant and you no longer experience it as an audience. Whereas when you had dailies, you actually experienced it as an audience, which is you meet, you meet, you're separated from the day where you're under all the pressure and everything and you have a certain feeling that you got it or you didn't get it. And the next day you look at it and you go like, we didn't get it or... You know, in lots of cases, believe it or not, I would say more than not, things are better than I expected them to be, which is really nice. So that you would go in the next day and say, oh, it's terrific, you know, and we don't have to reshoot it or we don't have to get that well, extra shot. That goes shot. with being, I think, you know, What's that? Most, most people who do some version of the things we do have a kind of perfectionist element. So you're going to think in the moment that it's nowhere near. Yeah, I mean, to be that, that's the other thing about, you know, talking about perfection is that, you know, for the most part, I like to build um, like mistakes into things mm. and I like to do it because I think it makes us believe them more. Sure. You know, I mean, if you have a shot where there's suddenly some part of frame that's burned out or, you know, looks odd or, you know, like I think lots of times you think, well, they, I guess they really were there. Well, it's a set and we lit it that way and it has nothing to do with the fact that, you know, the sun came out during the shot or whatever happened. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like doing process work in the old days. You used to, I used to always really overexpose it a lot, you know, because, you know, I figured if you're in a car and you're actually filming it, you know, it would be overexposed mm -hmm. outside. So, sure. you know, I'm always offended when I see process work that's all perfectly exposed because I feel it just takes it kind of gives away the illusion yeah. or just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Caleb, um, Thank you so much for 
Sure. Did I answer to all the questions? <laughs> <laughs> he did fine. Did though. I make up the, enough Thanks stories? For, Thanks for coming to our spacious studios. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Shh, Don't tell them. <laughs> uh, but no, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks yes. a lot. Yeah, no, thank you guys. It was easy and fun. Our show was recorded in Hollywood, California, at Crossroads of the World, with the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.